Let's hear the word of God from Titus chapter 3. Today I'm preaching mainly from verses 1 to 8, but to set it in context, let's read Titus 3, 1 to 15. This is God's word. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way, see that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. And this is the eternal and inerrant and all-sufficient word of God. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh, gracious God, now as we come before your word, we ask, O oh Lord, as your servants to open up, oh Lord, our spiritual minds and our hearts and our mouths and feed us, O oh Lord, with the manna, the true manna of the word of God. And Lord, we are... Uh, spiritually unable to receive your truth unless you come, O oh God, by your Spirit and enliven our minds and enlighten our hearts. Lord, I am unable to communicate what you have for us in my own power. And so I pray, O oh Lord, that you may by your power come and communicate your word and by your Spirit, O oh Lord, bring it home into our hearts that we may, Lord, live lives that are in accordance with your word. And, Lord, flowing out of the grace and the mercy of God that we have received in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray these things 
for the praise and glory of God and for the building up of your church. Amen. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, I have the great, great privilege again of bringing the word of God to you and to our hearts. And God's word, of course, has been um, my uh, sweetness to my soul all through this week. And one of the things that the Lord has laid upon me pretty heavily over the past couple of weeks is the importance of the relationships that God has given to us. And relationships are rooted in God himself. The triune God exists as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy, uh, the Holy Spirit. And this triune God has made us in his image. So that means to be human, to be made in the image of God, means to be a community, because God is a community within the Trinity. The first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul and mind and strength. And the second greatest commandment is to love our neighbor as ourself. Now, if we stand back and look at these two commandments, we notice they both relate to relationships. Our vertical relationship with God and our horizontal relationship with people, with all people. Relationships are important to God. And yet, from the moment sin entered into the world in Adam, our relationships with God and our relationships with one another have been infected by the evil of sin. And that sin has resulted in the destruction of both our relationship with God and also our relationship with people. Therefore, salvation from sin is, uh, involves, among many things, but definitely involves the restoration of our relationship with God and a right relationship with others. However, the restoration of these relationships is not immediate at the moment we're saved. Though our salvation is an event, a once-for-all transformation of our inner person, out of spiritual bondage and death and into a right standing before God, that is an event. Yet, the restoration of our relationships is a process, a lifelong process of sanctification. And so today we are going to examine the Word of God to understand what does the Bible teach us about our relationships as Christians in a fallen world. And what is the relationship between relationships that we have and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? The question that we're looking at today, what is the impact of the gospel of Jesus Christ on our human relationships? What does it mean when we are a Christian, come into relationship with the people God puts into our life? And to answer these questions, we go to the Word of God in Titus chapter 3. Titus, you probably know, is among the pastoral letters. And we call it that because these are letters written by Apostle Paul to Titus and to Timothy as 
pastors who are overseeing churches and Paul is directing them to all the things that they need to do in order to put those churches over which they are overseeing into spiritual good order and ensure their spiritual health. In this case, Titus is um, written by Apostle Paul to Titus when Titus is in Crete. Apostle Paul and Titus together, they went through Crete. Paul evangelized, planted these churches, and then went on. But Titus stayed there and uh, Paul put him in charge in order to establish these new churches. And so the, the, the letter Titus is written with these instructions about what Titus is to do to ensure that the churches remain healthy and well-ordered. Okay, so that's the backdrop. And a major theme in the book of Titus is the gospel producing in Christians real godliness in their day-to-day -day lives that manifest in good works. Titus is not a long letter, right? Only three chapters. But in these three chapters, the word good works or works or godliness appear ten times. That's quite the emphasis. So what is Apostle Paul trying to point out? Paul is instructing Titus that Christians should be characterized by good works. Good works ought to characterize a growing Christian, and a healthy church. And, and Paul deals with various kinds of good works in different areas throughout this letter. In chapter 1, he deals with especially godliness relating to congregational life. In chapter 1, he talks about the qualifications for pastors and, and sets in order how the churches should be overseen. Then in chapter 2, Paul emphasizes Christian living and family life and individual life, giving specific instructions on how Christians are to behave as older men, as older women, as younger men, younger women, as employees, workers, and so forth. And that brings us to chapter 3, where Paul kind of zooms out, broadens his view, and concentrates on a Christian and how a Christian ought to behave in their relationships with rulers and authorities, and people in general. And by emphasizing good works in this letter, Paul wants the Christians in Crete and the Christians in Kelowna, in Providence Baptist Church, and the Christians everywhere to adorn the gospel of God by their good works, as he writes in chapter 2, verse 10, which is in contrast to the false teachers who were unfit for any good work in chapter 1, verse 16. And so it's important for us as we look at this text, which emphasizes so much on good works, not to be confused. Not to be confused, especially about the relationship between good works that are here in the Word of God and the, the, the way of our salvation. So this brings us to a question. Can doing good works make you right with God? Can, can doing good works cause God to save you? And we know the historical, evangelical, reformed, biblical answer to the question clearly is no. Right? Ephesians chapter 2, 7 and 8 clearly says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. 
and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. But then what place do good works have in a Christian's life? Are they important? Are they optional? Is it kind of like, you know, you have the gold tier status and you have platinum tier status and then you have like silver tier status and uh, works are, are just a question for, you know, some Christians but not necessarily all Christians. And the scripture tells us that that's not true either. No, that we are not saved by good works, but the good works accompany and are the mark of our salvation. They are essential for a Christian. And so what's the connection then between the grace of God and salvation and the good works that that God's word teaches will be present in the Christian's life? The, The The Bible addresses this in many places, and probably one of the easiest to understand and the clearest place is today in this text, Titus chapter 3. Very simply and very clearly, Apostle Paul in Titus 3 addresses the connection between grace, faith, obedience, and good works. And it's especially clear and especially simple. The explanation comes in the form of seven short commands in verses 1 to 2 that relate to our ethical obligations in relationship to one another. And then following that, Paul explains the way that these are tied to the free grace of God that we have received according to the mercy of God our Savior. So Paul teaches us here that God saves us not by our works, but in order that we may do good works. And in particular, the passage has in view good works that characterize God-honoring relationships with the people around us. And these responsibilities are um, a mark of the obligations that Christians have as members of God's household. So let's jump in to the Word of God. Let's begin by looking at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. We here see seven short commands. First, that Christians ought to be submissive to rulers and authorities. During COVID, we talked quite a bit about that. We looked at Romans chapter 13. We looked at 1 Peter and other places to explore the Christian's relationship to the governing authorities that God has put in place. And you remember that the submission that the Christian gives to those in authority over him is rooted in the Christian's acknowledgement that all authority ultimately comes from God. And so our submission is in submission to God. And of course, it's not an unqualified submission to governing authorities, but in accordance with the law of God. We already saw in the past couple of weeks, Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, how Apostle Paul, uh, excuse me, Apostle Peter and Apostle John, when the, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin told them to stop preaching the gospel in the name of Jesus, said, you decide for yourself whether it is better to obey God or to obey men, because we must obey God. 
So the Christian's posture is uh, submission to the governing authorities as submission unto the Lord. And then what follows that posture is an attitude of obedience. And so this is the second command, that Christians are to have an attitude of obedience and actions that accompany that attitude. And then thirdly, Christians are called to be ready for every good work. And this phrase kind of bridges between doing good to governing authorities as well as doing good towards all people. Every good work means every good work towards the government, towards the community, towards the society, and towards individuals that God puts in our life. And there are many good works a Christian can do in society. Praying for our leaders is one that God tells us to do. Obeying them in the fear of God, not disparaging them or mocking or slandering or insulting or rebelling in word or attitude. And there are other good works that a Christian may be ready to do. And, and you can think of many, and I'll just include a handful, like con contributing to the needs of the people around us, ministering to the sick, caring for orphans and widows and the homeless that come as an overflow and expression of the love of God for us. And, and this was characteristic of the Christian church in Apostle Paul's day. You may remember there were various plagues that happened during the Roman times. And Christians were the ones who were the most notable in sacrificing even themselves and their health to care for, out of love, people who were outcast. And that, that is an example of being ready to do every good work. Fourthly, this uh, fourth command, to speak evil of no one. As we interface with the people in our society, as we see the opposition towards God in the world around us, as we hear the blasphemies that people say in their everyday life, so easy for us in our frustration and, 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 and just, you know, out of, out of our own, uh, just, uh, you know, indignation to use our tongues for evil to slander, to revile, to gossip, to disparage, to insult. And I think that that's uh, particularly dangerous as we look at the world around us because their deeds indeed are evil. But that doesn't justify speaking evil of those whose deeds are evil. The, the scripture tells us to, to speak the truth, but in love. In his letter to the Ephesian church, uh, Paul wrote, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. That's Ephesians 4.29. So we're not to engage in flame wars, lobbing evil words with our tongues like, um, like uh, internet trolls or on Twitter or any of those things, but rather to use our mouths to bless, to instruct, to correct, to encourage, to testify boldly to, to, the, to the truth of Christ in the gospel. And then fifthly, uh, Apostle Paul commands us and God commands us that the Christian should avoid quarreling, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling. And in the New King James, this is rendered to be peaceable. So that means there's a thing we should avoid and there's a thing we need to put on, right? There's a prohibition and a duty. The prohibition is to avoid quarrels and those things that lead to, to quarrels. Easily 
taking offense at others, harboring a grudge, nitpicking, like fault-finding in others, questioning the motives of others, questioning the actions of others, not believing in the best. Those things breed quarrels. And instead of those things, the, the Scripture calls us to be peaceable, to do everything we can to create peace and to be at peace, to be uncontentious, to pursue reconciliation and peace with others, not merely uh, aiming for a ceasefire, right, like a cessation of hostility, but real reconciliation and peace. And of course, real reconciliation and peace comes only through Christ and the gospel. The sixth thing is to be gentle. Christians are called to be gentle, to deal with others gently. Gentleness refers to a disposition of kindness, not being resentful, not being harsh, not being impatient, not allowing exasperation or aggravation to to inflame my own mind or or attitude towards others, to be long-suffering in dealing with the failings of others, bearing with their weaknesses in consideration and love. And then lastly, uh, verse 2 says that we need to show perfect courtesy to all people. And here courtesy means um, it's not just like having good manners or like holding the door open for, for someone. It means our attitude that we have as we interact with others. And to have perfect courtesy, again, the New King James translates that as humility, that our attitude is not focused on me, but focused on others, and most of all, God. So easily in our interactions with others, uh, we are aiming at accomplishing our agenda or satisfying our desires or exalting ourselves. But humility, the scripture says, is looking not only to our own interests, but in humility, considering others greater than ourselves and putting others ahead of ourselves. Now notice how broad and general these commands are. Submission and obedience towards governing authorities, God-honoring relationships towards all people. It's like this very, very broad, broadly applicable command that God gives us. And and when we think about it, like who who is the all people referring to? The all people. uh, Who is categorized as all people? And you don't have to be an expert of Greek to know that all people means all people. (laughs) It includes people who are far away, like our neighbors or community members or co-workers or uh, people in our society, just the, you know, fellow citizens. For the people, the, the, the church in Crete, all people meant the unbelieving Cretans, who, according to uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 12, were famously unruly, dishonest, and lazy gluttons, to the degree that even the poets talked about how famous the Crete, the Cretans were, the inhabitants of Crete were. There's even uh, records, historical records of of Roman historians talking about no society is as unruly and disordered as that in Crete. And yet, 
Apostle Paul says that the attitude of Christian God-honoring relationships is, ought to be directed even to those kinds of people. So that means in our context, that includes people in our sin-plagued world who are increasingly rebellious against God, opposed to us, and quick to oppose the truth. Of course, we need to confront falsehood and, and speak the truth, but we are do, we're commanded to do so with perfect courtesy, speaking the truth in love. So that, that means all people means all people. And all people also includes members of our Christian family. Indeed, if we should be responding to others in a God-honoring way in the world, how much more important is it that we respond to one another in pursuit of God-honoring relationships amongst our brothers and sisters who are part of our very own family of God? And so the, the command also includes the brothers and sisters who are in our very church, the ones that God put into our lives for our good and for his glory, that through one, uh, our fellowship with one another, God may be glorified and his people built up. And my dear brothers and sisters, that includes people in our church or people in our lives who perhaps even have mistreated us, perhaps even hurt, it, hurt us, with whom we have endured the pain of conflict or strained relationships. And notice how in verse 1, Apostle Paul says, remind them. It begins with a reminder. It's not new teaching. It's not that, that they didn't know these things. It's, they did know these things, but, but they need to be reminded. Apostle Paul knows that we need to be reminded too. Why do you think, you know, in this book, Apostle Paul is addressing good works in the lives of Christians. He could have addressed any of the various ways that we need to grow as Christians. But why do you think that he addressed relationships particularly? I can think of a handful of reasons. Maybe you can think of more. On the negative side, as we interact with the world, we rightly see the wickedness around us, but then so easily and so tempted to respond with arrogance and pride. In our relationships, we are prone to judge others. We are quick to overlook our own weaknesses and fixate on others' weaknesses. In our relationships, we're prone to selfishness, to self-sufficiency, to self-centeredness. We easily come into a relationship expecting my wants and my desires and my expectations and my needs and my rights to be met and lose sight of the purpose that God has created that relationship for. And ultimately that purpose is God's honor and glory. On the positive side, when Christians respond in love and kindness towards one another and, and pursue God-honoring relationships, the Bible says that we adorn the doctrine of God, that, that we, we make the doctrine of God look beautiful by the way that it creates love and fellowship and unity amongst the people of God. We show forth the fruit of the gospel 
that it's working in us, that the Holy Spirit is truly alive and dwelling amongst the people of God, that there is a love that surpasses any human love that exists among these people and testifies that the community of God indeed is a supernatural community created by God and sustained by his love and spirit circulating amongst the people of God as they love one another in ways that supersede any natural or human love or affiliation that we might have with one another. We become living evangelists in a fallen world. We act as salt and light in the world full of darkness. We follow in the footsteps of Jesus as we obey the commands of the scriptures to engage in the, all the one another's of, of God-honoring relationships. In doing so, we encourage and strengthen and minister to one another as our fellow brother and sister in the Lord Jesus. As I was uh, getting ready this morning, Dana was listening to a sermon by uh, R.C. Sproul, and he, he began that sermon with a joke. And the joke highlights the view that people have in, in our society towards relationships. And the joke relates to the marriage relationship, but it undergirds the general attitude that we have in relationships. And the joke goes like this. Marriage can be thought of as like a game of bridge. You begin with two hearts and a diamond, and then you end with two clubs and a spade. What does that show about us? It shows that, as a whole, our culture views relationships as, at best, something to derive a personal benefit from, and at worst, something that produces personal aggravation and ought to be discarded when it doesn't yield the benefits so desired. And, and that's the mindset that we have in our world. And so when Christians live in juxtaposition to that attitude, where we love one another not because of the benefits that we bring to one another, but because of the love of Christ that unites us and the life of Christ that binds us, then we stand in stark contrast. And Titus was being reminded that this is what the Cretan church ought to be like as a testimony to the Cretans, and, and this is how Providence Church ought to be like as a testimony here in our own society. And so when we think about, well, why is it that in the context of good works, Paul is focusing on relationships, the answer becomes clear. Isn't it that relationships with one another is the primary area where our sanctification and our need of sanctification is brought to the surface? Isn't it true that in our day-to-day -day dealings with one another, God exposes what lies under the surface of our hearts? Isn't it true that in our relationships, we come face to face oftentimes with our selfishness, our lack of grace, our pride, our lack of patience, and, 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 and at the end of the day, all we can say is, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. How can, who can deliver me from this body of death? How can I properly love the people that you command me to love? 
relationships are messy because they are occurring right in the middle of a war that's raging against indwelling sin. And at the same time, relationships are essential. God uses relationships as the chief means or one of the chief means by which God ministers grace to his people. Of course, our relationship with God is foremost, but our relationships within our families, within the body of Christ, and even with unbelievers, those are all means of grace that God uses to sanctify us and to allow us to grow as Christians. As I shared in, in the introduction, our God is relational, as God, the whole Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and he has called us to, to be restored in a relationship with him, as well as in relationship with one another. And so throughout the scriptures in various places, Hebrews 10 and a few other places, it talks about the importance of, of stirring one another up to love and good deeds, not to disengage uh, from one another, but not to neglect one another, but to encourage one another and to do it all the more as we see the day drawing near. We need the word of God to remind us of the obligations that we have towards one another and, and to humble us and to root us uh, theologically in the motivation for pursuing God-honoring relationships. All right, now we said a lot about relationships, and Paul's desire here is not to heap condemnation onto the Cretans because of the messy relationships. And God's desire and my desire also is not to heap condemnation or a bunch of duties upon you to make us into a church full of legalists. No, that's not the desire. Instead, Paul wants to spur these Christians on to good deeds by placing these commands in verses 1 and 2 in the proper theological context and motivation. And so Paul lays that out in verses 3 to 8. And here I was greatly helped by a sermon by Tom Askell that really helped organize the thoughts in this text really well. And so the key message that Paul is saying in these verses is that our good works, and, and, and notably among them our relationships, are not to earn the favor of God or to merit right standing with God, but are motivated by what God has already done for us. And, it, and Paul explains this in these verses by calling us to remember four things. So let's look at them, starting with verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And here, Paul is pointing us back in our memory to consider what we once were. He's saying, remember how you used to be, right? The relationships that you're facing and the challenges that you're facing in those relationships because of that person who you say is foolish and disobedient and led astray and, and full of whatever, that's how you used to be, Paul is telling us. Remember our past condition before we were saved, that we were once foolish, that we were the senseless ones. We were the ones ignorant of the things of God and blinded by our sins and unable to see our faults. And sure, we really felt justified in our point of view and we could see our righteousness very well, but we couldn't see that in reality we were doomed 
and pitiful and dead in our trespasses and sins and disobedient to God and to people and led astray from the truth and following all kinds of lies and thinking ourselves wise and yet being fools, thinking that we're free and yet slaves to various passions and pleasures, ruled by evil desires. And our conduct was dominated by our wickedness. We passed our days in malice, Apostle Paul says, full of envy, driven by this relentless pursuit to gratify ourselves. And maybe we don't think of it like that way, but that's the way the Bible describes it, that we were detestable people, hated by others and hating one another. And, and, and who wouldn't hate one another if we're having all of these people ruled by evil passions and then forcing them to live in proximity to one another? And that's where we were. We were in bondage to sin and to moral pollution. And this is what God says is true for all who are apart of him, from him. And Apostle Paul says that we need to remember that. If you lose patience, pause and remember that what the one is causing you to lose patience is, you once were. And apart from the grace of God, you still would be, and so would I. So let's not be hard on people who are still in that condition, knowing that we lived in that condition. And brothers and sisters, we need to remember what God has done for us, what we once were. When we remember how God has saved us, I think then we will gladly do what God calls us to do. So that was the first thing. Remember who we were. The second thing is remember what God has done. Let's look at verse 4. So with this backdrop of the way in which we once were, Apostle Paul says in verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. And so in that lost estate where we were, and if you put yourself back in that condition before you knew Christ, when you were there in your dead in your trespasses and sins and, and full of quarrels and full of disobedience and foolish and, and, and morally corrupt and an enemy of God, God saved us. Though we rebelled against him, he saved us. Though we were dead, he made us alive in Christ Jesus. Though we reviled him, he draw near to us. Though we hated him and hated his law and hated his people, he showed love to us. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, when did that happen? It, it appeared most forcefully in the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, into this world. When God sent his Son into the world, the Word made flesh as a real man, to live in perfect obedience, to fulfill all of the law of God in our place, to die on the cross for our sins and then rise again from the dead for our justification. That is the kindness and, and loving mercy of God to us. God accomplished our salvation in Jesus out of his love. So meditate on this, uh, my dear brothers and sisters. Ponder this that we have been saved out of the depths of our sin by God our Savior. And as we remember what God has done in saving us, it, it puts to death pride that so easily creeps into our hearts. 
It magnifies the grace and mercy of God, our Savior. It puts us in our proper place, and it puts God in His proper place. It magnifies the grace of God and the mercy of God, and it propels us to thankfulness and to worship. And it humbles us as we realize that we have done nothing to merit the grace of God's kindness. We didn't deserve it, and yet God has given us salvation in his Son. He did not treat us as our sins deserved. Though we pushed him away and offended his infinitely holy person, God did not treat us as we treated him. He did not pour out his wrath upon us, though we deserved it. But he sent his Son to fulfill the law of God, poured out the wrath that we deserve upon that Son in our place. Our relationships are oftentimes reflective of the idea of, I'll draw near to you when you draw near to me. I'll seek a relationship with you when you seek a relationship with me. I'm so thankful that God in his grace and mercy had not treated me in that way but that when I was dead in my trespasses and sins, God drew near to me and granted loving kindness and goodness to me through his Son. Thirdly, Apostle Paul calls us to remember why, excuse me, how, how God has done this in verses 5 and 6. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So how did God save us? It says, not by anything I've done, not by anything you have done. Uh, no righteousness of mine can stand before the throne, but my only hope is Christ's righteousness are now my very own. It's according to the mercy of God. Ephesians chapter uh, 2 verse 4 that says that but God being rich in mercy and in 1 Peter 1 verse 3 it says according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again. God delights in showing mercy. Uh, what does mercy mean? Really if you think about it mercy means not getting what I deserve. Christ got the punishment that I deserve. God withheld the punishment from me by putting it on his son. And that mercy comes to us, according to verse 5, by the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. When by his Spirit, God comes and transforms us from the inside. And the Bible calls that regeneration. That we were his enemies, we were dead in sin. But the Holy Spirit comes by the Word of God and implants faith and generates newborn children of heaven, transforming us inwardly. The Bible calls that spiritual rebirth, being born again, regeneration. It's what God has done by his Holy Spirit, a work of spiritual creation to transform us. And it says in verse 6 that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So look at the, and maybe you can see it here, right? We have God the Father who has saved us. 
We have the Holy Spirit who he has poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. So we can see the whole Trinitarian work of our salvation, that God has uh, the Father shown mercy and loving kindness in initiating our salvation, that God the Holy Spirit has in mercy come and washed us and made us new and transformed us inwardly, and God the Son is the one through whom the Spirit has come. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Father planned salvation, the Spirit accomplished salvation, and, uh, excuse me, the Son accomplishes salvation, and the Spirit applies that salvation. So my dear Christian, brother and sister, if you are a Christian, it is because God has mercy in his mercy uh, and divine power has acted upon you in your sin and, and worked upon your heart to save you. And he has done this not because of anything I have done or that you have done, but because of his mercy and grace. He sent Christ to live in our place in fulfillment of God's law to die for our sins, to bear God's wrath. He raised him from the dead for our justification. Now Christ has ascended into heaven and to poured out onto us the Holy Spirit by whom we have received the, the mercy of spiritual new birth. The Holy Spirit uses the word of God to accomplish this new rebirth. By taking the passages like this, grabbing hold of our minds, transforming our hearts so that we can see ourselves as God's word declares us to be. He changes our affections. He works in our desires so that we respond appropriately to the law of God. He grants us faith to trust in Christ. He puts new desires in us to not focus on self or um, our desires but or our agenda, but to, to really selflessly pursue the love of God and love the people of God for the glory of God. What a, what a mercy the Lord has shown upon us. If you are a Christian, we can praise God for his mercy. And if you are not a Christian, if you're a stranger from God, my friend, hear the word of God to you now that your only hope is mercy. Throw yourself on the mercy of God, for he delights in showing mercy. He has sent his son to die for your sins, and if you will turn away from sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive him as your Savior, you too can experience God's mercy. And lastly, Apostle Paul calls us to remember why God has saved us. This is verses 7 and 8. Look at verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. When the Holy Spirit regenerates a person, we become able to trust in Jesus Christ as Lord. Then, as we trust in Jesus Christ, we are justified in God's sight by his grace. And as justified people, we become the heirs of the hope of eternal life. And Apostle Paul says that this is a trustworthy saying. 
That's a, a phrase that Paul uses in his letters to emphasize truths that bear repeating, that everyone ought to believe, that we must insist upon as Christians, that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works, not because of the need to appease God, not because we want to merit the favor of God, but because of the grace that God has manifested in our lives through the gospel. Now, can you begin to see this connection between the grace of God and our devotion to good works? Remember what we once were. Remember what God has done in saving us. Remember how he has done it through the Holy Spirit, through Christ, the Son. And remember why he has done it. And when we remember these things, we will be careful to devote ourselves to good works. That God has saved us not by our works, apart from good works, in order that we may live lives devoted to good works. And this commends the gospel as we do it. It puts the glory of God on display. It, it is excellent and profitable for people, Apostle Paul says, and it testifies to the love of Christ at work within us to a watching world. So brothers and sisters, uh, we need to be careful to remember that our salvation is through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, apart from works that no one may boast. And yet, God has saved us that we might commit ourselves to good works. And really central to the good work that a Christian does is pursue God-honoring relationships that are characterized by the things discussed in this text. Submission, an eagerness to do good, peaceable, gentle, humble, seeking not my good, but the other's good and the glory of God. Can, can you begin to see this connection between the mercy that we have received in God and, and the, the, the mercy that we are to extend to others in our relationships with them? It's not that we do that to merit the mercy of God, but because we have received the mercy of God, then we are motivated to show mercy. As ones who are saved by the grace of God, we are empowered to extend grace in our relationships with one another. As ones who have been forgiven, we can forgive fully from our heart those who have wronged us. We who know that I once spurned God's law in prideful rebellion and yet have received mercy and kindness can turn around and respond to others with that same kindness and forbearance and love. My dear brothers and sisters, are you struggling to manifest these in your relationships with others? Are there areas where you are retreating from God-honoring relationships rather than pursuing them? Are there areas in your relationships that God would have you to grow in? My dear brothers and sisters, I want you to take heart. I want you to be encouraged. Remember these truths, that you and I 
once were foolish and disobedient, led astray and slaves to sin, and we passed our days in malice, and we hated others, and others hated us. But when the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. He didn't retreat from us. He didn't withhold mercy from us. But he pursued us by his grace in sending his own son. So let us uh, remember what God has done for us. Let us remember how he did it, by the gospel of our salvation. And let us remember why he did it, so that we who have been freely saved, freely blessed with bountiful grace, beyond measure, may devote ourselves to good works that are excellent and profitable for people in our relationships with others for the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, we live in a small church. God has, by his divine will, appointed that you and I would be brothers and sisters in one body. Interpersonal challenges are inevitable because, why? We are sinners, and we are prone to offending one another. Every day we fail to live up to what God calls us to. We fail to pursue peace. We are slow to be ready for good works. We are uh, proud and, and, and self-serving rather than humble and seeking to glorify God. We grow weary. And I feel that we are growing especially weary in the current time. Our tendency may be to withdraw, to disengage, allow distance to grow, allow the embers of brotherly affection to fade, allow resentment to fester. May God help us to repent. May God help us by his Spirit to remember the grace of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God, with which God has loved us, how he has shown us mercy. May God, by his word and spirit, oppress upon our hearts the wonder of the glory of the grace of Christ Jesus. May God help us to see the privilege of bearing with one another's weaknesses because we know how mercifully God has borne with our weaknesses. May God help us in this little church to pursue peace with one another because God has graciously made peace by the sacrifice of his very son. May we seek out opportunities to love one another and to serve one another because Christ sought to serve us. And by this, may God bring glory to his name as this little church grows up in genuine God-honoring love and fellowship and relationships with one another. I pray that God may multiply our love for him, our love for each other, by his grace, for your good, for my good, and for the glory of God. May this be so. Let's pray.
O gracious God, we thank you, O Lord, that by your goodness and loving kindness, you have saved us. Lord, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you showed us mercy by sending your Son as a man to obey your law and to fulfill, Lord, the righteousness that we could never accomplish and then die in our place. Lord, freely we have received. Help us, I pray, to freely give. Forgive us, I pray, O God, for our failure to relate to one another and to the people around us and in our lives in a way that you command. I pray, O Lord, that as we behold the beauty of Christ, and as we remember how you have shown us mercy, and as we recall how you have saved us, and as we contemplate the wonder of our Trinitarian salvation um, planned by the Father, accomplished by the Son, and applied by the Spirit. Oh Lord, that this may motivate in us a love for God and a love for the people of God that testifies to the truth and power of Christ at work among your people. Lord, may you make this church one in which God-honoring relationships show forth your glory. I pray, O oh Lord, all of this for your glory and for the building up of Christ's church. Amen. Amen. Amen.